Good evening, Herb. It's kind of good to see you here at the controls, at the massive console, <laughs> producing these enormous sounds of light. Oh, we would like to salute the Boston Globe, uh, if we may, tonight for the misprint of the year so far. Oh, it's a goodie. Yeah, it's a picture of Charlton Heston here in the Globe. That's a Boston paper. It's uh, often considered almost as good a humor humor paper as the Philadelphia Inquirer, but uh, yes, which runs a runs right behind the New York Daily News. But uh, here we have uh, Charlton Heston, and. Uh, you know, it's about the Oscars that are coming up. You know, it says, uh, Charlton Heston will serve as a master of ceremonies for the 45th Annual Academy Awards presentations in Hollywood, the 27th of March. Heston, who won an Oscar in 1959 as Best Actor for his performance in Ben-Hur, has appeared as a celebrity three times on the Oscar show, but will be faking his first appearance as master of ceremonies. Would you please? Oh, the telephone calls that are going back and forth between the agents now. What do you mean my client is going to be faking his first appearance as a master of ceremonies? Gee, we, 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 we try to catch those things in the, in the, in the, in the linotype before we print them, but that's all right. Nobody's going to say my client is faking his way. Even if he is, I got her not going to say it. Thank you. I like the idea you're faking your way through. You know, one of the greatest uh, misprints I ever personally... You know, you, you see a lot of misprints that are occasionally reprinted, you know, down at the bottom of the New York, the New Yorker magazine or something. Once in a while, you catch one yourself. And uh, the, one of the best ones that I've seen ever myself was reading a paper out in Cincinnati, and it, it, it had a description of... Uh, of uh, <laughs> had a description of a disturbance that occurred out there. And uh, the uh, disturbance involved a lot of people. And the, it says, the police arrived, and to disperse the crowd, they fired shotguns in the air over the crowd. Only there was a misprint. La-dee-dee. <laughs> That would be an exciting weapon to use as a crowd-controlling device. Yeah, that would certainly stop a lot of riots in a hurry, I'll tell you. That was kind of a great one. Yeah, then there was another one. Uh, it was a kind of a, another great one. It said uh, there was a, a description of a wedding. You know how they always describe weddings and the dresses that the, that the girl wears, you know, very involved, a high big society wedding in Cincinnati, and uh, it uh, described her dress. It says the dress was a, an original creation of, uh, of, uh, of Gavanchet or some very elegant uh, designer. It says uh, this uh, dress was a very elegant dress. It was flown over from Paris, and it had uh, tiny pearls sewed into the bodice, and it was uh, uh, an original created just for this wedding. It said uh, what made it unusual was that it was decorated with scalloped hams. I thought, that is a hell of an unusual dress. Now, I can see <laughs> what they meant, of course, was H-E-M-S. But just one little word, you know, one little letter made the whole difference. And then, I, having known the bride, though, I say it was kind of descriptive because she had scallop, 
scalloped hams anyway, so a uh, large lady. But uh, these, uh, you know, these things you take in stride. I think a lot of uh, a lot of misprints are not really misprints. I think they're Freudian slips. And I think that the that the idea that this guy said that uh, Charlton Heston was faking his way through the ceremony and master of ceremonies role uh, probably said something about the linotype operator and his his uh, feeling about Charlton Heston as an actor. So. <laughs> Oh, tattoo, tattoo, tattoo. Hey, you know, we'd have, we'd like to salute this kind of a sad little note that's come out today. You know, you can you can just see all of life is in in newspapers. You don't have to read uh, novels to get what life is about. Most people tend to go to movies and uh, read novels to see what life is all about, or get books by Doctor Rubin to find out about sex. But all you got to do is read the papers. I mean, tell you, it's all there. It's all there. Will Rogers was right. In fact, it, it, you remember he said, "It's all, all, all that I, uh, uh, all I know is what I read in the papers." Was his famous line. Well, if you know all that's in the papers, man, you know everything about life, because it's all there. For example, uh, here's one of life's minor tragedies: a commentary on contemporary society. This is from the Evening Bulletin of Philadelphia. Three years ago, in Titusville, Pennsylvania, Willie Hunter. Do you remember Willie Hunter? We talked about Mr. Hunter couple of seasons back, was well-known in the Crawford County town of Titusville and received a trophy for attending 3,000 funerals. He was a fantastic funeral-goer and would attend maybe seven or eight a day. You remember I talked about him? Well, in fact, he was cited by the city's funeral directors as the greatest funeral-goer of them all. <laughs> well, you know, fans get recognized these days. I mean, they have fan day. Out at Yankee Stadium, they have fan day when the Knicks play occasionally, you know. And he's a, he's a funeral fan, or was. It says he was cited by the area's funeral directors. The inscription on the trophy reads, and the trophy is still in existence, it says, for meritorious morning service. An unsurpassed at funeral homes. Yes, sir, a great, great mourner and a great funeral goer. He passed on to his reward this weekend, last weekend, actually, at 66. His trophy was buried with him, by the way. And uh, the saddest line of all is at the bottom of the, of the news note. His funeral was attended by nine persons. <laughs> I mean, there's a, now that's what I call a, you know, that's what I call a, 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 one of life's minor tragedies, you know. A great funeral goer. Nobody comes. But they, this is the way life is, you know. You just can't. Now, now, take, for example, uh, before we go any further, how about let's doing a House of Chan spot, you know, Life of the Lion. Jerry Lambert, my producer, went down to eat there. Did you have good food there? Is it fine? Well, you look like you're, you're wondering whether you did or not. What the hell is this? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't order a cheeseburger at the House of Chan, and that's what you persist in doing. I mean, sweet and sour cheeseburgers are not exactly their specialty. Uh, well, anyway, I like it. And uh, for those of you who uh, have never visited the House of Chan, you can honestly see why I have trouble with my producers. Food is a little bit above them, I think. It's a little too esoteric. And uh, for those of you who enjoy uh, good Chinese food, really good, you know, uh, I would suggest you go down to the House of Chan or up, depending on where you live. It's at 52nd. Well, see, I always think of up, you know. I live in the village all the time, and I always think of going uptown. 
but it's uh, 52nd and 7th Avenue, right? Right in the heart of the Ding Dong District. And uh, you'll love it. Food's good. They're open seven days a week. It's the House of Chan. This is where Charlie got that tremendous alderman that he carried around with him in all those pictures. You know, it isn't an alderman. He's not necessarily a politician. That's a bay window. And uh, the food is elegant. It's good. And uh, they have 22 chefs standing at attention by their walks, ready to do your merest, slightest oriental bidding. It's inscrutably delicious, their food. That's uh, 52nd and 7th, right in the heart of the theater district. In fact, if you're going to a show, make sure that you hop down there before you go in, have dinner there. And and tell them you're going to a show, because they'll get you out in time. That's 52nd and 7th, seven days a week. Food is great. They're open at midnight, and they have a barzy. You can get a drinky poo before you're... And don't ask for one of their sweet and sour martinis. They're terrible. <laughs> ask for the regular martini. It's good. There, we did that real nice. And now here's a word from the California Prune Advisory Board, and they will give you some very fine advice on prunes. Hi, friends. This is Terry McGovern with a message from California Prunes, the funny fruit that does so much for you. Prunes are loaded with vitamins. In fact, pound for pound, they've got eight times the vitamin A of the leading fresh fruit. (laughs) And more niacin and vitamin B2 than the six most popular fruits. (laughs) And here's something something you girls might be interested in. (laughs) What Terry's trying to say, folks, is that pound for pound, prunes have more iron, niacin, and vitamin B2 than the six most popular fresh fruits. They're loaded with pure, natural fruit sugar to give you quick energy to help you make it through the day. And what's more, prunes do great things for your complexion. I'm sure I speak for Terry when I say, try some California prunes. The funny fruit that does so much for you. How did you do that? Terry... These are the sounds of wild timber wolves, now almost extinct in America. Because man feared them, he killed them. Yet not once in our history has there been a documented case of wolves attacking a human being. Wolves have a necessary place in nature. They weed out weak and diseased animals of other species. That way, only the strong breeders continue the lion. Without wolves, our deer and caribou would diminish. Now, perhaps just in time, Movements have started to protect the wolf, and the American Museum of Natural History is giving its full support. Come see our exhibition, Never Say Die. It is the story of wolves and other endangered species. The American Museum of Natural History, 79th and Central Park West, open every day. You know, you talk about talk about uh, little things in the paper. I see, uh, here's, a, here's a note, uh, Miss... Uh, Faith East, Lentz, rather. Miss Faith Lentz will get a free pass to the Hogel Zoo. Uh, and that's out in the... You know, things are happening all over, you know. it's uh, uh, This uh, this is the SLC Tribune, whatever that is. You know what the SLC Tribune is? People, I guess, think they know you know where they live. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Some One of my spies says this. It says it's from the SLC's... What? Los Angeles? Southern 
I don't know, SLC Tribune. But anyway, it's a note from the SLC Tribune. Where is the Hogel Zoo? That's where the Hogel Zoo is, wherever that paper comes out. I never heard of the Hogel Zoo. Uh, Salt Lake City, yeah, very good. My God, you're probably right, absolutely. Excellent, yeah. Miss Faith Lentz uh, <laughs> will get a free pass to the Hogel Zoo next time she visits there. She was locked in the snake house Sunday night when the zoo began closing down for the day. Yeah, everybody left, and she was still fooling around with the snakes. And the place is closed up, and there she is with the boa constrictors and the hooded cobras. <laughs> she couldn't even get out of the snake house. <laughs> she tried the telephone. You know, she picked up the phone, and uh, she didn't realize it, but the phone, I didn't know this either, the phone was wired to an alarm. Apparently, after the, after the lights go out in the zoo, everything is wired for, you know, for dingbats that get in there and try to wrestle polar bears and stuff. So uh, the, the phone was alarmed, hooked up as an alarm, and she picked up the phone, and it began to ring, which made all the snakes nervous. And when the snakes are nervous in the snake house, at night, when you're in there all by yourself, you tend to get a little nervous yourself. She bent a door frame with a chair, removed a pane of glass, and finally struggled free. Uh, Mrs. Lance said she was talking to another woman and a child and suddenly discovered she was all alone in the building. Locked in a snake house. And uh, they gave her a free pass. That's a terrible gift. I mean, you'd think she'd see enough of the snake house. I mean, that way. But uh, that's these are the little things. Now, you see, this is a typical example of life in action. It cannot be predicted. And uh, the idea of being locked in a snake house uh, is a good premise for a a, a short story by a uh, you know a, a black humorist type writer. See, it's the night in the snake house, and uh, she, you know you could build a whole thing you know Kurt Vonnegut style, which is a little obvious of course, but the, the, it's, you're giving the people what they want. This is the stuff they. Hey, by the way, the next time I read a review. Uh, or a or a, or a report or a, or a commentary that that brings up incessantly what is called man's predicament. What the hell is man's predicament? How many times have you seen that in a review? Man's predicament. <laughs> Once again, we were thrilled to the core as we read Samantha Hogelswan's magnificent novel, I, a petal falling in the water as uh, she illustrates in searing tones today's man, today's predicament facing mankind. Well, uh, what is the, the predicament? You know, what is the predicament? I mean, predicament means that you have a choice, actually. Uh, you know, not necessarily. What is a predicament? You know, <laughs> and, and, and whenever I start reading a review and it deals with man's predicament, I just hum quietly and go on to the racing news. And I'm not even interested in racing. This is WOR New York. <laughs> so, uh, but man's pretty... Jerry, you read all those reviews all the time. You're constantly reading the New York magazine and all that. Yeah. And uh, that, that uh, between talking about Rex Reed and man's predicament, uh, they, uh, they cover the entire week. Oh, no, they talk about Rex Reed, man's predicament, and Clay Felker. So uh, in between the three... You know, they got it pretty well taped. But uh, you know, uh, speaking of, uh, I-, I noticed that magazine has has uh, 
fulfilled uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst, old uh, dicta. You know who Hearst was? He was the guy, you know, the yellow journalism star. And uh, he, his great dicta was, give them plenty of sex and crime, and uh, it'll be, <laughs> you'll do all right. And uh, in other words, he was, he was pr- describing success in the publishing world. And uh, I've noticed that's pretty much the way they've gone, sex and crime. Uh, well, uh, but, but, but different kind. Uh, his, their sex is not the daily news type. It's, uh, uh, can modern marriages survive? Dr. Rubin discusses the intimate details uh, with pictures illustrated with line drawings and fold-outs. And now, that's not called sex in the contemporary. That's called uh, information. It's uh, basic uh, tools for living. Uh, but uh, I don't know. And, uh, and then that's interspersed between articles like uh, I Barricaded My Door, a, uh, a searing expose of life on 8th Street, and uh, the corruption of today's police force. And I, I fought with the Black Panthers, you know. <laughs> or next week, Inside the Mafia. Well, uh, this, uh, you know, this is uh, this is an old uh, an old dictum. There's nothing wrong with it. I think Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Hurst was on to it. He said it. La da dee dee la da dee dee. End of commentary. Dee dee dee. That commentary. But uh, yeah, you know that's what the movies are about. Give them plenty of sex and crime, and they'll come by the millions. And uh, that's always been the case. But of course, it's disguised. It's uh, it's never never said that it's uh, you know if if somebody just came out and really honestly had little boxes you know departments in their magazines or in their in their uh, reviews and you know like you know, today you you pick up the uh, any review uh, magazine like the New York Times and they're always listed under mystery uh, contemporary society and stuff. Now those are awfully big, uh, very very loose definitions. And it would be kind of great if they just listed, you know, sex, uh, sadism, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, polemics, and that listed them on the various issues that they really deal with. I'm talking about books. Don't look so confused here. We are confused because you don't often read those things. They don't have those catalogs. They don't have that kind of thing in the Allied catalog. I'm sorry, you know, but the, or the Heath catalog. <laughs> but uh, all, all uh, jesting aside, though, Stop and think about it. How long has it been since you have seen a a movie that did not include either sex or crime or a combination of both? I'm just asking a question. I'm talking about a contemporary movie. I mean, you may go once in a while and see see a uh, Laurel and Hardy festival or something like that. But I'm talking about a contemporary picture: sex or crime or both. Now, the crime can be many different types of crime. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a guy shooting another guy. The crime can be such things as, uh, uh, oh, uh, let's say, political. Hey, have you have you observed now that there's a rash of badly done jewel thief murderer type slash uh, films, and they all involve exactly the same gimmick. Somebody is always lowered down from a skylight, wearing what appears to be a rubber suit. That's uh, <laughs> I don't know why they wear that rubber suit all the time, but but they're always lowered down from a skylight wearing a rubber suit, and involving some kind of suction cups where they lift the the top off the thing, you know, and they reach in, and 
It's it's all about thwarting the security system, right? You've seen that. Uh, how many how many of those have you seen recently? Dozens of them. That's called the top copy syndrome, and it's been going on and on. They just lower them down. And uh, there's there's another type of uh, movie now that's become very prevalent now. It's the folksy private eye or and slash detective. That's called the Columbo complex. Uh, the the fo- you know who Columbo is, Peter Falkett, the folksy uh, foot shuffling, uh, you know, uh, clod kicking uh, type of uh, folksy private eye. You know, he says, "Shucks, I don't know what I'm." What I'm doing here, but uh, ma'am, I'd just like to ask you one question. Uh, just one question. Where was you the night of the murder? I, <laughs> I know, of course, it's just for the records, but uh, you know, this is the the uh, the new. Have you seen it? How many of those have you seen? You haven't, Jerry. That's true. But then again, uh, you're still deep in the modern uh, museum of modern art world, and this is a very different thing that's going on. Get out there once and see what's happening. <laughs> Get out there once and see see what's going on. And, of course, the various uh, variations that lie within that. You can have a folksy sheriff from uh, Taos, New Mexico, who is magically somehow uh, on uh, assignment with the 23rd Precinct, and he keeps walking around wearing his big 10-gallon hat and say, Well, folks, I don't know anything about these big city police methods, but back in Taos, the way we do it, I go, I call Ben up on the phone, then I get out my 45, and... And uh, <laughs> so that's that's one variation. Then you have the Peter Falk variation, which is a kind of a well, uh, ma'am, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I'm Lieutenant Colombo of the police force, and I I uh, I, I just uh, I just want to ask a little question here. Uh, um, my wife was talking the other night. And I, I I know it's silly, but uh, I have to. This is the uh, this is that variation. Then there, then now there's the black variation. Uh, so you have the, the black folksy detective, which is another one. That's that. That's that's the new development. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm just saying that the things go in waves. They come in waves. You know, it's like it's like uh, you know the flu bug will attack the nation for a while, and then it'll disappear. It'll be replaced by Egyptian measles. It'll come for a while, and then that'll disappear. And, and uh, so we're right now in the middle of the jewel thief uh, thing. And, uh, of course, uh, for a while there, you remember here a year or so ago, I should have reported a year or so ago, we had a wave of uh, aging rodeo riders. Uh, this was, uh, you know, the aging rodeo rider. Well, so why is it I happen to know all these things and everybody's looking confused? You mean you, don't, you haven't seen any one of seven movies by uh, Steve McQueen and Cliff Robertson, all of whom were aging rodeo stars? Uh, you make their one last try at the big bull, and uh, of course there's the le- there's the scene where the where he rides the big Brahma in Madison Square Garden in slow motion, with the Sam Peckinpah gore thrown in, and uh, this uh, this is uh, always very exciting, and uh, that uh, that that was a wave which I should have reported on at the time, but the the current wave of uh, of top cappy scenes uh, is is. Contemporarily with us, of course, there's another one too, uh, and that is the the uh, there's a new type of detective emergence uh, that I would like to report on. It's a it's an emerging, it's the it's the racial ethnic detective. Uh, we've now got uh, one Italian detective, Colombo. We have one Polish detective, Banachek. 
We have uh, one black detective, Tenafly. We have, uh, there are about three ethnic-type detectives that are making it big. And, of course, we're going to run the whole gamut. Uh, there will be a Hungarian detective. Of course, that will not come about until we have Hungarian jokes. See, uh, all of these various detective uh, series are based on those jokes. So Banachek is always making Polish jokes. And uh, nobody else can make them. Only a Pole can. So Polish jokes are always being whipped out by Banachek. And uh, Italian jokes always keep popping up in Colombo. He's an Italian, see. So uh, we'll have to wait, though, when, you know, you know Hungarian jokes start. And uh, we'll, then we'll have a, a Hungarian detective uh, who will go around making Hungarian jokes, you know, about goulash and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, the, old, the idea of the ethnic detective has never, it's not really that new. Uh, as a matter of fact, Charlie Chan was an ethnic detective of the, yes, uh, deep-dyed ethnic detective. In fact, he was always making Chinese and or uh, Chairman Mao Red little red book statements, proverbs, you know, Confucius say. You know, he was always saying, uh, uh, whenever there was a moment of, of tenseness in the drama, he would stop and say, Ah, uh, ancient wisdom say, he who panic in moment of danger will be first to go way of beheaded snake. This is a... <laughs> That would be the, you know, typical. You could, you could ad-lib these by the hundreds, you know. You just sit there and ad-lib them. And that was, uh, that was in effect, a Chinese joke. Uh, it, was, it was a Chinese joke of, uh, of a certain type. In fact, did you, did you know that at one time they, they even had these? A running comic strip used to have a Confucius Say bit. You remember that? Sure, you do, Herb. Of course you do. And that was always a Confucius Say and uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a kind of a mild Chinese joke of the with mild philosophical overtones. But uh, another one who was another great ethnic detective. Well, Peter Lorre, of course. Who did he play? Why do I know all these things about movies? And you're supposed to be the film buff. You mean to tell me you never saw Mr. Moto? Of course, Mr. Moto at the Olympics. <laughs> Mr. Moto, Passo, Evil Doer to Riviera. That was uh, that was Peter Laurie, although, although he didn't use that accent. That was more of a that was more of a, uh, a Sidney Toller accent, who was uh, Charlie Chan for a good long time. He was always saying uh, Number One Son. Remember that Number One Son. Uh, well, please report to police, Lieutenant, immediately. Give yourself up. <laughs> so, remember, remember those? Uh, another great scene, of course, in all the Charlie Chan movies was that big moment when the Chan would say, "I beg, I beg your indulgence. All members present at a very elegant dinner party. I beg your indulgence. I must make announcement. I will please uh, a closed door at uh, at the." Uh, Ahead of uh, dining room, please. And please close window to avoid unpleasantness. And now must make announcement, please. Uh, someone present at this dinner party uh, commit the murder. Someone here at this dinner party is guilty of the murder. And we will proceed now 
to analyze and decide who commit murder. And you remember that big moment when all the people would look at each other? Who did it, you know? And everybody's looking. Everybody looked nervous, of course. You knew that everybody had done it. He said, first we must eliminate those who were certainly not able to perpetrate crime due to situations they found themselves in. To begin with, we must eliminate Miss Carruthers. Miss Carruthers, we know at the time, was unconscious due to blow upon back of head. Since murder occurred at 10.18 and Miss Carruthers was found at 10.17 with blow upon back of head, we must eliminate Miss Carruthers. Now, <laughs> you remember those? <laughs> Great moments, you know. And, uh, and Key Luke was saying, Hey, Dad! Hey, Dad! Uh, what about... He said, oh, attention, son. One, uh, please. Uh, impetuosity, always sign of youth. Same thing happened to spring chicken. Wind up in pot. Right? <laughs> you can see I've mastered the median. But uh, that was, uh, you know, these are all part of, of uh, you know, the great, uh, the great literature that we live by. And it hasn't changed much. Uh, the only thing that's changed, of course, is we've, we've uh, substituted uh, a Polish detective for, uh, for a, a Chinese detective. Chinese are kind of out of style now as, uh, you know, as, as private eyes. I haven't seen good Chinese private eye in a long time. That doesn't mean they won't come back. Oh, no, they're, you know, because eventually there's going to be a big movement called, uh, you know, uh, it'll, it'll be called Peking power or China power or something, and, and then, then we'll have a whole raft of those, but... But uh, nevertheless, the uh, the Chinese. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't recall any any leading uh, Japanese uh, detective in the in the movies. Or was Mr. Moto one? I don't know. What was he? He was just sort of an amorphous Oriental. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Was Mr. Moto Chinese or Japanese? And uh, do you remember Mr. Moto? Uh, I wonder. I wonder who who can tell me who wrote Mister Moto's stories. Very famous writer wrote them. You know who wrote them? They were taken from a series of novels. You know who wrote them? Well, I'll tell you who wrote them. Why do I know these bits of? This is true trivia, by the way. People who think trivia is who played the second gangster from the left in uh, in uh, the High Sierras with the. Uh, that's not trivia, really. That's just movie stuff, you know. But the. True trivia is who wrote the Charlie Chan mysteries? Who wrote them? You mean you don't even know that? You know, that's the way fame is. These guys, it's, it's too bad. You know, a guy will create something that will even become part of the language. Really, seriously, become part of the language. And people all over the world know who Charlie Chan is. And yet, uh, here my two intellectuals in the control room have no idea... Who wrote the chart? Who created? There was one guy. There was no Charlie Chan until this guy thought him up. <laughs> it wasn't Warner Olden that thought him up, or Sidney Toller, or the movies who thought him up. This guy thought him up. And who who was it? Well, uh, that'll be your homework for tonight. These these are the people that really contributed to twentieth century life. I mean, you know, guy the guy that would uh, create the Charlie Chan. That's your homework for tonight. I'm not going to tell you who created then Mr. Moto which were not as well known, but I'll give you this clue, that he wrote them uh, for kicks, and he came from a somewhat aristocratic family. And since he did come from an aristocratic family, 
Uh, he was literally drummed out of uh, the aristocratic family because he was writing cheap detective novels on the side for kicks. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that should give you a clue to him. Because his other novels were about elegant society, and they were very serious uh, classical novels about uh, elegant uh, society. I won't tell you. This guy has like a split personality. On the one hand, he wrote these novels of of Brahmin society, and the other hand, he wrote Mr. Moto, and the, the, his family was very embarrassed about his detective stories. Okay, I'll ask you another one, since I happen to know these two guys, you know, the, the names of them. Who wrote uh, the, uh, who created Tarzan? Well, that's right, now you know that one, yeah. Okay, you know who created Tarzan. Oh, but here's a better one. All right, now we have, we're taking great classical pop figures, you know, of our time. Of our time, meaning the 20th century. And uh, they still persist. Who created Lassie? Lassie was created by a person. There was no such dog ever as Lassie. And he created Lassie. Who was it? Uh-huh, you don't know, do you? <laughs> Now, there's, there's fame, you know. These guys created really great characters. And, and by great, I mean they. everybody in the country knows about them, even if you like... It doesn't matter whether you like them or dislike them. We're not making any value judgments. They're universal characters. Right? Universal, they're universally known. And they're even almost in the language. Lassie. And, uh, don't, uh, all right, we'll ask you another one. Uh, you, you like this, don't you? Okay. Who created... Uh, this one is not, of course, as well known. It is as well known, but it's not. It's not talked about much. Uh, the author doesn't get much credit. But who created Black Beauty? Now you're pretty close. <laughs> Black Beauty. Now that, that now that one is, by the way, is on television now. That character. Uh, these are all characters that have, you know, are part of the TV world. These are not. Uh, these are not. Yeah, here, we'll, we'll ask you a goodie here. Uh, this is a real goodie. Uh, the, the, a, a series just went off. A Western series just went off. And it was it, it, one of the oldest television shows in America. And one of the most successful in America. It was based on a radio show, which was even better. And it was, that radio show, by the way, was primarily based on a novel. What was it? No, I'll give you a clue. It was set in the West. <laughs> and, and very few people ever, ever recognize that, you know, the novel upon which the thing is based. Uh, but almost all of these things, uh, the, the great classic ones, have originally started as a You know, these chore. Some guy created some characters, and uh, somebody liked them, and the next thing you know, it went, went into television and movies and comic strips and the whole bit, and uh, went all the way out, all the way. Uh, that's true also, uh, in, a, in a curious way, of, uh, of comic strips. Uh, that uh, who uh, you, you know, you take guys like, you know, guys that create a fantastic character, uh, now I, I'll have to point out something. The reason that I'm, I'm, uh, I know about these things is that 
is not because I was contemporary or anything in any of this stuff, because a lot of these things were written a long time ago, but because I have, I've, uh, I was fascinated for a while at one point in my, and when I was going to college, I, I got fascinated with the creators. This was sometime before it was really hip to dig pop culture. I've been uh, doing it on the air for some time. You're talking about long before it became a, a big deal. And uh, and I was fascinated at one time with people who created universal characters from whatever medium they were in. Now, uh, and, they, and they, they are a fascinating lot, and they're largely unknown to people. That is, the people who even know about the characters. For example, I don't think many people would know. Here's a universal character, for example. There's a universal character, Popeye. Now, Popeye is a universal character. A man created Popeye. He thought of Popeye. He also created Wimpy. <laughs> he created Olive Oil, that whole cast of characters, which have become sort of a, uh, an integral part of the, well, the, the culture. In fact, they even have Wimpy burger stands and all that. And uh, I wonder how many people walking up to a Wimpy, but you've seen Wimpy burger stands? I wonder how many people even know who Wimpy is or was. You know, they think it was some guy that started a bunch of hamburger stands one time. <laughs> so, so the the idea is is uh, here's a guy again, a contributor, but very few people know his name. Who created Skeezix? Skeezix. There's another character who is. Uh, these are all, I think, in the same line with guys that created Char Charlie Chan, guys that created the. Uh, Mr. Moto, Tarzan. These are all great classical figures in the, in our pop culture. Uh, who? All right, here's a goodie. Uh, who created King Kong? King Kong is from a novel. That'll come as a shock to all of you. All right. <laughs> How do you like that one? I'll lay that one on you. There was no King Kong, believe me, before this person wrote a novel about it, which later became a movie, of course, and that's what everybody knows. But the, the uh, idea of, you know, the King Kong character was created by somebody. That threw you, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> now, uh, you know, a lot of... All right, let's take, let's take other... We, we just mentioned... Uh, uh, we just... Speaking of great fictional characters, we just mentioned... Uh, uh, Charlton Heston, right? And he got a he got an Academy Award for playing a great fictional character that's been in many many movies. There never was a Ben Hur, you know. That's a fictional character. Who created him? Now that's a very interesting story. That is really an interesting story. That one. Who created Ben Hur? We'll leave you think about that one for a while. And that is a fascinating story because of what the guy's previous career had been. Aha. Uh -huh. uh, so there are a lot of fictional characters. I wonder how many people know who created Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. You know, we just think Scarlett O'Hara was there all the time. <laughs> a most lo you know, logical character. You know who Scarlett O'Hara was, of course, in Gone with the Wind. Who actually created Scarlett O'Hara? It was not... Uh, was not the actress who played it, nor did Red, Rhett Butler. He wasn't created by uh, 
by uh, Daryl Zanuck or whoever it was who produced it, and uh, Clark Gable who did the thing. Who 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 created these two characters? You know. And I'll tell you another sidelight about this person, another odd sidelight. This is the only book this person ever wrote. Just like that. Laid a biggie on the crowd and left. <laughs> All right, I'll ask you another one. We've seen, how many times have you seen another great classical character? Is uh, Mr. Roberts. You know Mr. Roberts? Great classical character. Uh, you know that you've seen the you know there was a stage play and a movie and all that and Henry Fonda was Mr. Roberts, very interesting character. Who created Mr. Roberts? It was not Henry Fonda. I'm sorry. Who created? There, there's another guy that created a kind of a. He wasn't as big, but he was kind of a popular, uh, kind of a, a folk character, Mr. Roberts. Who was he? Who created that guy? And he's remained, you know, sort of in the literature since. Uh, and these uh, these characters, of course, you know some of the more obvious ones, like Lil Abner, you know who created him, but that's an obvious character. Uh, because the guy himself, in other words, the creator, sought publicity and got it for himself. But on the other hand, who created... Uh, this, will, this will give you kind of a thing. Who created uh, uh, Terry and the Pirates? Who created Terry? Another character, Smiling Jack. Who? Here's one for you. One of the great uh, folk heroes of, of all time. I mean, he, he's he's involved. They even had a series of uh, movies about him. Who created Dick Tracy? That's right. Who played him in the movie? Did you know there was a whole series of bad movies made about Dick Tracy? Yeah, you you saw those. <laughs> I was thinking about them. <laughs> but who played him? There you go. Uh, who created another great uh, character of, of that type? Boston Blackie. Boston Blackie. Remember Boston Blackie? Oh, well, all right. <laughs> now, there, you see, I, I, the only reason I did this is, is if you think you know something about pop culture, you better, you know, you better regroup. Uh, regroup. Regroup, gang. Did you enjoy that? Well, you know these are guys that that nobody talks much about, you know. And uh, don't don't immediately flood me with letters telling me about the time you saw a Boston Blackie movie. You know, nothing to do with that, because I I have uh, I must admit that I I at one time in college spent two semesters writing a a major paper on these characters. So I've i uh, my knowledge comes from cheating. I studied. <laughs> Right up there, but they are important people, you know. They disappeared kind of in the in the vast, uh, you know, the vast disappearing sea of, of instant anonymity. Even though their character lives on, they created. All right, here's one you all know. We even named mustaches and everything after his character. Who created Doctor Fumancho? Doctor Fumancho. Now, some of his great descriptions were fantastic. Let's say, I am Dr. Fomancho. I am bound upon world domination. I believe my superior intellect deserves to rule the world. 
Who was who created that great character? Okay, you got your homework cut out for you, gang. Yeah. 